This week, Sears appoints restructuring veteran Alan Carr ahead of October 15th maturity. iHeart UCC reaches settlement with debtors. Westmoreland Cole files Chapter 11. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lung, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Connor Skelding. This week, Karen sits down with distressed debt legal analyst Jessica Steinhagen and research analyst Ian Howland of Reorg First Day to discuss Chapter 11 trends in through the third quarter, including what debtors are saying and which industries are seeing the most filings. It's Sunday, October 14th. Sears was the topic of many conversations this week. Tuesday's appointment as independent director of Alan Carr, a former Skadden Arps attorney and now managing member of Drivetrain with, quote, significant experience leading complex financial restructurings, kicked off a week of bankruptcy talk. The 132-year-old retailer once sold everything from farm machinery to electric guitars to church building kits from its iconic catalogs. Now, unable to stem ongoing cash burn, Sears faces at least four potential liquidity events over the next 12 months. First, the maturity of second lien notes and an alternative tranche second lien line of credit on October 15th. Second, rolling maturities on the company's second lien line of credit loans. Third, a potential secured note collateral coverage event at the end of the company's third quarter. And fourth, October 2019 second lien and unsecured notes maturities. And all while trying to stock the shelves ahead of the holidays. On September 23rd, majority shareholder ESL Investments, led by Eddie Lampert, proposed a series of transactions that would effectively trade near-term liquidity for a transfer of some of Sears' most valuable real estate assets to ESL. The proposal was highlighted by three major buckets, including the purchase of real estate in exchange for debt forgiveness, liability management, and asset sales to pay down debt. Lampert's vehicle controls a significant portion of the company's capital structure, including debt secured by real estate and intellectual property. Mattress Firm's bankruptcy continued this week at the first day hearing, at which Judge Christopher Sanchi granted the debtor's requested first day relief. The combined disclosure statement and confirmation hearing is set for November 16th. Mattress Firm and a series of affiliates filed for Chapter 11 last Friday, with nearly $180 million in funded debt and $160 million in trade debt with a prepackaged plan of reorganization, under which no creditor classes will be impaired. Mattress Firm's non-debtor parent, Stripes U.S. Holding, Inc., or Sushi, has another $3.2 billion in debt in the form of intercompany loans. The debtors intend to close 700 stores to, quote, right-size the business. Among the primary features of the plan is the payment in full of pre-petition secured debt, including a full roll-up of the pre-petition ABL facility. In addition, general unsecured claims, including lease rejection claims, would be paid in full. On Wednesday, parent company Sushi launched its English scheme of arrangement by distributing a practice statement letter to creditors. The hearing for the scheme is anticipated to be heard on or around October 24th. At Mattress Firm's first day hearing, Bajan Guzina of Sidley Austin, counsel to the debtors, said that, quote, in all likelihood, Sushi would file a Chapter 15 petition in the U.S. iHeartMedia reached an agreement with the official Committee of Unsecured Creditors. As a result, the UCC now supports plan confirmation. The agreement would settle claims and causes of action identified in the UCC's standing motion and ABL claims objection. According to the disclosure statement supplement, 
allowed guarantor general unsecured claims recovery would range from 45 to 55 percent compared to the previous stated recoveries of zero to seven and a half percent. However, the DS states, the improved treatment of certain unsecured creditors under the settlement would have a, quote, de minimis effect on the debtor's other stakeholders. The revised plan also notes that as part of the settlement, in exchange for the UCC support of the plan releases and the claims and interests held by consenting sponsors and their affiliates, the confirmation order would provide that sponsor unsecured claims will be deemed withdrawn with prejudice as of the effective date. The plan notes that sponsor unsecured claims refer to any general unsecured claim held by the consenting sponsors other than those related to any indemnification provision. Westmoreland Coal Company filed for Chapter 11 on Tuesday in the Southern District of Texas. The debtors entered bankruptcy with a restructuring support agreement between the debtors and an ad hoc group of lenders. That group held approximately 76% of Westmoreland's term loan, 58% of its senior secured notes, and 79% of its bridge loan. The ad hoc group has also agreed to act as a stocking horse bidder to acquire substantially all of Westmoreland's assets. Affiliate Westmoreland Resource Partners LP, a publicly traded master limited partnership, would continue its sale process, which started pre-petition. Westmoreland's Canadian entities and Westmoreland Risk Management Inc. are excluded from the voluntary petitions. During the first day hearing, counsel for the debtors advised that the debtors would file bid procedures within a week and a plan within two, while the sales process for the MLP has already yielded some interest from potential bidders. Debtors' counsel also said that Westmoreland is seeking to reach an agreement with its retirees and union employees, anticipating that an agreement with those groups could potentially be reached within one or two weeks of the first day hearing. Judge David Jones approved the debtor's requested relief, including approval of the debtor's dip financing on an interim basis, as well as the MLP cash collateral motion also on an interim basis. The second day hearing is scheduled for October 30th. On the island of Puerto Rico, the Government Development Bank and the Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority announced last Friday in a stipulation that they, along with the PROMISA Oversight Board and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors, had reached a, quote, mutually agreeable resolution of the UCC's concerns related to the GDB restructuring. The proposed stipulation, among other things, contemplates payment of $30 million in settlement cash by the GDB, provision of more resources to the Title III debtors that are net creditors of the GDB, and transferring certain GDB legal claims to the Commonwealth. Judge Laura Taylor Swain entered the stipulation on Tuesday. Judge Swain also set a date of November 20th for the COFINA Disclosure Statement Hearing and January 16th for a confirmation hearing on COFINA's plan of adjustment. The Oversight Board and FF also announced last Friday that they are soliciting feedback regarding a, quote, alternative securities design based on the same available cash flows. The alternative structure contemplates nearly $500 million less in par value of current interest bonds and nearly $500 million more in initial value of capital appreciation bonds which would result in future value of $11.5 billion for the cabs, roughly $9.5 million less than under the current structure. Also in Puerto Rico, Public-Private Partnerships Executive Director Ivan Marrero and House P3 and Energy Committee Chairman Victor Perez both confirmed that the government is aiming to issue requests for proposals in November for the privatization of the island's electricity authority. However, there may be challenges in having the full process completed by late 2020. Separately, PREPA, the island's electricity authority, reported an almost $46 million increase in operating accounts to about $280 million for the week ended September 28th. 
Other top read stories of the week were number one, a Costa Crossholder group working with Centerview, Davis Polk. Number two, Lynette Coe engages Lazard as additional advisors. Number three, and in our opioid coverage, Magistrate Judge recommends maintaining most claims against opioid distributor, pharmacy, manufacturer defendants in track one case. And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thank you, Connor, and welcome to the show. Great having you here, and greetings, listeners. Even better to have all y'all here, because this week we're going to get busy. Monday, October 15th, Sears Holdings has 134 million second lien maturity due. There is, of course, a lot going on with this name. We reported on Friday that the company is planning to close a third of its stores at the outset of an expected bankruptcy filing, although the actual terms do remain in flux. Their big store in Houston, just north of the Museum District, closed down early this year, but its signage is still silhouetted against the deep blue skies of Texas. There is also second quarter earnings and a call from Albertsons, whose Randall's unit, as I've said before, is known for the excellence of its fried chicken, and a confirmation hearing for Rex Energy. Tuesday, October 16th, if you are a holder of certain debt securities issued by Altice USA Finance One Corp., SQL Communications Holdings One, and SQL Capital Corp., well, the early exchange offer for said bonds expires today, so make sure you tender. This is part of the company's move to combine its Suddenlink and Optimum businesses under a single credit silo. Wednesday, October 17th, back to the theme of retailer reorgs, we have an omnibus hearing in toys. And as for early tender deadlines, those are not forgotten today. There's one for W&T Offshore's 2019, 2020, and 2021 notes. W&T, of course, sold $625 million of second lien notes last week. They're due in 2023 and were priced to par to yield nine and three quarters. Thursday, October 18th, in iHeart, a supplemental hearing for the company's disclosure statement and oral arguments in the legacy note holder adversary matter. There's also a stockholders meeting for super value. And Friday, October 19th, the next era plan reserve distribution hearing in the EFH matter and the expiration of the forbearance period in PetraQuest. That concludes my allotted time. With that, back to you, Karen. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, Karen sits down with our first day team to discuss what we've learned from Chapter 11 filings in the third quarter. Thanks, Connor. Today, I'm talking with the team at REARG First Day, Jessica Steinhagen and Ian Howland. REARG First Day monitors Chapter 11 filings across the country with more than $10 million in liabilities and tracks trends in filings through the First Day database. With the end of the third quarter, it's a great time to check in on Chapter 11 filing trends at this point in the year and on the credit cycle. Jessica, let's turn it over to you. You and Ian came on the podcast earlier this year and told us about a number of themes, struggling brick and mortar retailers, healthcare companies, farms, and energy companies. From a high level, can you comment on the volume of Chapter 11 filing activity you've seen and the kinds of companies filing for Chapter 11 in the third quarter? Thanks, Karen. Uh, year to date, Reorg First Day reported on 261 Chapter 11 cases, 75 of which were filed in the third quarter. In just the last week post Q3 end, we also saw large Chapter 11 filings from American Tire Distributors, Mattress Firm, and Westmoreland Coal. You're right that this quarter saw some of the same industry trends experienced in previous quarters. We continue to see bankruptcy petitions from brick and mortar retailers, healthcare providers, farms, and energy companies. 
There were also new industry developments, like the first company to cite adverse effects from the Trump administration's new steel tariffs, as well as the impacts of newer web-based entertainment platforms on traditional film distribution companies, and also a number of retail and hospitality companies focused on high-end goods and services falling under. The consumer discretionary sector maintains its status as the busiest sector for all Chapter 11 filings in the last quarter, making up just about a quarter of the total cases, just about the same share as it was over the first two quarters of this year. Cases in the financials sector, which were down earlier in the year, rose from the first half share of 18% to about 21%. Healthcare share also increased significantly from a first half average of 9% to the third quarter share of 17%. This was due in part to many filings by nursing home providers whose struggles have been significant since Reorg First Aid first began coverage in 2015. Filings in the tech industry accounted for almost 3% of all cases in 2017 before increasing to almost 6% in the first half of this year, comprised 8% of cases in the third quarter. Great. So that's a bird's eye view of the types of companies that have been filing for Chapter 11 this past quarter. The team at Reorg First Day not only keeps track of industry trends in Chapter 11 filings, but also looks closely at the documents submitted by the bankrupt companies to the court in order to analyze the causes of those bankruptcy petitions. By looking at the events leading to the Chapter 11 filing, in the company's own words, we can get a more granular look into the causes of the bankruptcy. Ian, can you tell me more about those causes for the healthcare companies that you've been tracking? Jessica noted that the share of bankruptcy filings from healthcare companies has increased significantly. Yeah, a few a few trends have emerged. If you Take a look at hospital operators that have filed for Chapter 11 in recent years. The majority have been skilled nursing and long-term care hospitals, which make up just over 60% of the hospital filings since January 2017. That's combined with approximately 40% filed by general and acute care hospitals. Many of the numerous hospital Chapter 11 filings have been by facility operators serving rural communities, which have struggled to compete with larger metropolitan healthcare networks. Since the beginning of 2016, rural hospitals make up nearly 75% of acute care and general hospital filings covered by Reorg First Day. Many of these healthcare providers seeking bankruptcy protection in recent years have blamed their troubles on increasing uninsured populations and falling reimbursement rates from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Jessica mentioned earlier that many of the healthcare companies filing for Chapter 11 in recent years have been nursing homes, and Texas has been the most active state for that type of filing, followed by Florida and Connecticut. Texas also leads the U.S. for bankruptcies by healthcare providers of all kinds, including acute care hospitals and private practices, with Florida close behind. Texas and Florida are also two of 19 states that opted out of the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act and are among the least insured states. And Jessica, you mentioned that you continue to see many retail companies struggling and filing for Chapter 11 relief this quarter. In a broad sense, I think that won't be surprising to many listeners. It's not a secret that many businesses are grappling with the changing retail environment and the challenges posed by big online retailers like Amazon. You saw the slide of the retail sector in the first two quarters. So what did you find in the third quarter? Retail continued to take up a large share of cases covered this quarter. There were a few chains that filed, like Discount Clothing Retailer National Stores, Samuels Jewelers, and also men's apparel company Sarar. Soon after the start of this past quarter, 
the fourth quarter, a mattress firm also filed for bankruptcy in the last week, which was the largest Chapter 11 filing from a retailer this year. Some food-related companies also filed with Seasons Kosher Supermarkets and Restaurants, Real Max, and Noon Mediterranean, along with Fika Coffee Chain. And what were some of the reasons cited by the companies for the filings? There's often a wealth of information in the declaration that a representative of the debtors files in support of the first day motions, including the circumstances leading to the Chapter 11 petition. The first day team looks closely at those first day declarations. Uh, so what were the explanations given for the bankruptcies of those retailers? There were a range of factors, many connected to managing the physical presence of the business. Both FICA and Seasons filed, at least in part, because of issues relating to pre-petition expansions of their store footprints. Mattress Firm also blames a rapid expansion for its filing as it more than doubled its store count between 20, 2006 and 2016 um, with its acquisition of Sleep Train and Sleepies. They also noted, interestingly, that in some cases there are two Mattress Firm stores located across the street from each other. The mall-based and apparel companies, though, generally pointed to a need to address their lease issues. And let's talk a little bit about the dreaded Chapter 22, a company that previously emerged from Chapter 11 filing another case, presumably because that earlier restructuring wasn't successful. Have you seen struggling retailers undergoing recurring bankruptcies? There were some notable examples this quarter. Brookstone, which retails wellness, entertainment, and travel products, filed as a Chapter 22 after it failed to escape what it called, quote, the decline in the mall model. Then there's home furnishing company Heritage Home, which filed in July. Heritage was formed in 2013 by KPS Capital Partners, which acquired the brand portfolio and certain related assets of furniture brands through the furniture brand's bankruptcy. We also shouldn't forget that recurring bankruptcies aren't really limited to Chapter 22. You could have a Chapter 33 or even 44. Samuels Jewelers filed for bankruptcy in August, the fourth filing by the company or its predecessors. The jewelry chain blamed increasing competition in the industry from discount and other retailers such as e-commerce. Discount retailer national stores filed in the wake of various acquisitions, including stores from Factory 2 and Anna's Linens, each of which filed their own Chapter 11 cases. So a lot of the companies that you monitored this quarter and that you've mentioned so far have a chain business model. So did the chains generally file with the same path in mind for their cases? I'm curious about what they intended the trajectory of these Chapter 11 cases to be. We saw a range of strategies from these larger retailers. Some filed to conduct 363 sales like Fika and Seasons, each of which secured a stocking horse bidder before the filing. And Heritage Home also filed to sell assets in different tranches. Other filed to liquidate, like luxury San Francisco retailer Gumps. Some of the larger national chains filed with hybrid strategies, where the debtor seeks a going concern sale for some assets and going out of business sales for certain closing stores. Brookstone and national store stores are examples of debtors with those hybrid strategies. Also, kicking off our coverage for the beginning of this quarter, Mattress Firm filed, on, or filed for Chapter 11 on October 5th with a different tactic, a prepack plan under which all creditor classes are unimpaired. The mattress company says it intends to exit up to 700 of its retail stores, with 200 to be closed within a few days of the Chapter 11 petition. Mattress firm said the Chapter 11 case was needed because it would have 
run out of cash by the end of October without the bankruptcy filing and the various forms of dip and exit financing they lined up, including $250 million in dip financing and commitments for $525 million in exit financing. I should say, though, the mattress firm is somewhat unique given its relationship with Steinoff. Reorg learned that certain Steinoff Europe AG creditors funded the dip. And in one of the weekly summary stories released by Reorg First Day last month, you highlighted troubled expansions as a prime reason for Chapter 11 filings for a number of companies. And those companies were, uh, they included, but were not limited to retail chains. That seems to be based on the idea that the reality didn't match up to overly ambitious or overly optimistic plans for expansion or increased production. What were some of those companies? Right. Retail companies, including the Real Mex restaurants and fast fashion retailer Agassi, filed after unsuccessful expansions. Other companies that cited lackluster expansions as reasons for their bankruptcies were Hooper Homes and Little River Healthcare, which ran into trouble with mergers and acquisitions. Of course, the idea of underperformance against expectations isn't limited to expansion plays only. For example, earlier this year, we saw similar problems with two firearm companies, Remington and Extreme Bullets, which filed after ramping up production and increasing inventory with the expectation of a Hillary Clinton presidency. This quarter, the team also covered the season supermarkets case, which added to the mounting number of Chapter 11 cases in the consumer staples category. How has that sector fared this quarter? The season's Chapter 11 brought the 2018 consumer staples cases up to 24, a 71% increase over the same period last year. The sector also had a large amount of farm cases and food distributors earlier in the year. Seasons was just the latest grocer to seek bankruptcy protection since Southeastern Grocer's billion-dollar filing back in April. Headwinds in the grocery sector do seem to be playing a part. Southeastern attributed its filing to challenging market conditions in the food retail industry in the southeastern U.S., along with, quote, stiff competition from the likes of Walmart and Amazon, and rising demand for gourmet shopping experience. However, season struggles are more company-specific. The season's following follows the company's 2010 acquisition of former Supersol Closure Supermarkets, after which the debtors were burdened by consultant payments to the former principals of the acquired businesses. You said earlier that Mattress Firm is the largest retailer to file for Chapter 11 so far this year, and it filed shortly after the end of Q3. Let's talk a little bit about timing. Mattress Firm filed for Chapter 11 on the Friday just before the Columbus Day weekend. On a topic that's long fascinated bankruptcy observers, what days of the week are most likely to see a bankruptcy filing? So this depends on the size of the case, with small filers opting for Friday filings, but the largest filers filing earlier in the week. Over the last few years, Friday has been the busiest day of the week for bankruptcies for cases with liabilities between 10 million and 100 million, while Monday is the busiest day of the week for all Chapter 11 filings covered by Reorg First Day. While smaller cases are most likely to file on Friday, cases with liabilities between 100 million and 1 billion are most often filed on Monday. For cases with over a billion in debt, Wednesday has been the busiest day. So it's interesting that Mattress Firm didn't actually file on Wednesday, the most popular day, for Chapter 11 petitions by debtors with liabilities of over $1 billion. 
Let's take a few minutes to discuss a Chapter 11 case that filed the day before Mattress Firm, American Tire Distributors, and trends you've seen in the auto sector more broadly. American Tire Distributors is one of the largest auto industry debtors to file in Chapter 11 in recent years. While most cases in the industry come from owners of auto dealerships, the biggest cases with respect to debt have come from auto parts manufacturers. Before American Tire, there was the bankruptcy of automotive safety equipment manufacturer Takata, which filed on the heels of a highly publicized product recalls and subsequent class actions. There was also car materials company GST Auto Leather, which reported 100 million to 500 million in liabilities and lamented a sharp decline in new vehicle manufacturing that it blamed on longer-lasting vehicles and the surge in ridership for rideshare platforms. Then there were vehicle replacement part manufacturers UCI International and Speedstar Holding Corporation, each of which reported 500 million to 1 billion liabilities on their Chapter 11 petitions and cited tough competition in the aftermarket auto parts industry from countries with cheaper production costs like China. For American Tire, it seems like the events leading up to the filing um, were the loss of suppliers Goodyear and Bridgestone, which combined made up a quarter of the company's revenue in 2017. In April, Goodyear and Bridgestone announced their own joint venture tire distribution businesses to compete with American Tire. Great. Thanks for that more granular look at some of the largest bankruptcies from the last quarter and beginning of this quarter. Now, let's take a step back to look at the higher level features of the Chapter 11 filing activity from last quarter. What was the busiest month of Chapter 11 filings in the third quarter? We covered 34 new cases in August, making it the second busiest month this year, as well as the busiest August for Chapter 11 cases going back as far at least as 2015. And how did dip financing stack up this quarter? Roughly a quarter of Q3's filers, or about 20 of the total 75, submitted motions for dip financing as part of their first day briefings, which was down from approximately 30% over the first quarter and second quarter periods combined. The consumer discretionary sector, which includes Q3 retail filers like Samuels Jewelers, J&M Sales, Heritage Home Group, and Brookstone, was responsible for approximately 32% of the dip motions. And the healthcare sector, which made up only 17% of Q3's cases in general, was responsible for 37% of the dip motions. No other sector had more than two companies filed dip motions during the quarter. The three biggest dips came from Verity Health, which requested $185 million, Samuels Jewelers, which requested $110 million, and J&M Sales, which requested $100 million. All three companies requested their dips while pursuing 363 sales. The highest interest rate was in Little River Healthcare's dip at 15.1%, while the lowest was Confluence Energy, whose proposed dip included no interest rate. The operator of the Flatiron Hotel was dealt the highest default rate of interest at 20%. 42% of the dip motions included roll-ups of pre-petition debt. Now, there's recently been a bit of a lull in larger bankruptcy filings, where the debtors reported over $1 billion in liabilities on their petitions. What was going on there in terms of the timing of these larger cases filing? Over the last week or so, there have been three cases in which the debtors reported over a billion liabilities on their petitions, beginning with American Tire Distributors filing last Thursday, Mattress Firm's Friday filing, and Westmoreland Coal Companies filing this past Tuesday. Before that, the only billion-dollar case this quarter was Verity Health's late August filing. Prior to Verity, you would need to go back three months to Rex Energy's May filing. This is a stark contrast from the first three months of the year that had an average of more than four billion dollar cases each month. 
April and May each only had one. And what about the recent volume of prepackaged and pre-negotiated cases? With yesterday's filing of One Aviation, there were 28 Chapter 11 cases filed this year in the form of a prepackaged or pre-negotiated case, with only one in the third quarter, which brought the prepackaged cases to approximately 11% of all the cases for the year. Over the same period, year to date in 2017, there were about 33 cases making up about 13% of the total filings. But in both years, the energy sector represented the largest share of prepacks. Lastly, let's talk about 363 sales. You maintain a database for Chapter 11 filing activity, and you've now added a new section on 363 sales so you can more easily track sale activity. There were nine cases in the third quarter in which the debtors sought to conduct sale processes, all reporting debt between 10 million and 50 million. For debtors reporting between 50 million and 100 million in liabilities, there were two in the last quarter and six debtors seeking sales that reported more than 100 million in liabilities. To find a billion dollar case with a sale, you need to look back to the second quarter filings of Rex Energy and Nine West. Well, thank you so much, Jessica and Ian, for those insights about the Chapter 11 filing activity from the last quarter. As of the recording of today's interview on October 11th, we're certainly looking at a very busy beginning to the fourth quarter. Along with the three large bankruptcies mentioned by the first day team today, those were Mattress Firm, American Tire, and Westmoreland, we're also looking at a potential Sears bankruptcy within the next several days. We'll continue to monitor that filing activity. Back to you, Connor. Thank you, Karen. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Connor Skelding, and this has been The Week in Reorg.